Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And, and the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting, and my very special guest today is Don Butler of Tomvest. Welcome, Don. Great to be here. Thanks very yeah. much for uh, having me. So we met like probably six years ago yeah. when I had a fintech okay. idea, Yeah. and you were, I think, the nicest oh, and one of the smartest you. VCs <laughs> I met, and That's so kind of, I was super excited to have you on the podcast. Maybe you can kind of tell your, your professional story a little bit and how sure. you ended up at Tomvest. Sure. If I were to like look back at the span of the career I've had... Um, Started initially in investment banking uh, back in the days at uh, sort of the investment banking analyst at Lehman Brothers. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, from there, uh, actually transitioned into doing business development for startups. Uh, and uh, so made a transition out to the West Coast, um, worked in tech investment banking for Lehman out on the West Coast yeah. after working in New York. And then said, you know what, what I really want to go do is I want to work with startups doing BD. Uh, and so for me, it was actually did a lot of work helping companies go out to Asia because I also had an Asian background. So um, did that for about uh, six or so years uh, and you know, worked across many, many different companies. Um, it was a group uh, called Asia Pacific Ventures. Uh, and so we helped people launch out in Asia. And then during the course of that process, uh, met a guy named Peter Thompson, uh, who had just started a, uh, a venture firm called Tomvest. I've, I've heard of him. Yeah, uh, of Thompson <laughs> Reuters fame. Uh, and it's funny, I think Peter and I are about the same age. Ooh. And so... I would say we're still, you know, call it early to mid-career. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I never thought I would work at any one place more than like five years. I thought, you know, five years you sort of, you, you've had a good run and yeah. go, and uh, February will be 20 years. Oh my God, working really? With That's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, um, it's amazing. you were sharing with me before we turned the mics how much Tomvest has grown. It's yeah. been really amazing. Like, and we'll get into yeah. kind of the the opportunity you recognize in fintech, but maybe just share the metrics on the firm and yeah, how big you yeah, guys yeah. are now. If you look at it today, um, we're about uh, 11 folks out here on the West Coast, and we're organized in, in according to verticals. So we have a, a vertical model where these days heavily focused on uh, areas that I cover, for instance, like uh, fintech. Uh, we also cover prop tech, and then we also cover cybersecurity. Oh. Uh, and then in each of those areas, we have teams. And so we have everything from senior people who've been operating executives to investing folks like myself, and then also to uh, like principals or associates. And if you look at Peter Thompson's broader group, uh, there's the venture business out here, uh, about a $500 million fund today. Yeah, which is kudos to you, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's grown from the very early days when we first met. Yeah. Um, and that's an evergreen fund, so in effect we're reinvesting profits from previous investments, and hence it's scaled up. Uh, and then he also has a couple other businesses, one of which, and it's kind of relevant to directions we're going in, 
uh, is a residential real estate business where he buys, renovates, and rents out residential real estate across parts of the um, south, southern states, southeast. You know, it's funny, we were saying just beforehand, uh, we had a, a year-end planning session, and I think we had, uh, gosh, about 22 people in total. Wow. Uh, the planning session. So back from the days when it was sort of like two or three of us. Yeah. And uh, for a venture capital fund, that's a really good size. Like, yeah, you know, venture decent, capital funds yeah. tend to be, they tend to be lean. And so kudos to you. That's, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Well, fun. and I'm so excited to have you on because you just, and I'm going to speak for you because you're oh, a very modest you. person, <laughs> but you just totally nailed the first kind of wave of fintech as I know it in like the, the 08 to, I don't know, 12, 14 time zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, until we got lucky. We got yeah. Very well, lucky. <laughs> but there's luck yeah. in, uh, being, yeah. being the right, you know, knowing what, what's going to happen. So maybe talk about like that first wave and some of those companies you invested in and the opportunity you saw at the time. Yeah. It's funny. Um, the very first company we invested in was lending club. Yeah. Uh, not bad. Yeah. It worked out well. It worked out well. Um, you know, it, it's amazing. Um, and, and that company's sort of gone through its travails a little bit in the public market, but uh, still um, uh, was an amazing run. And as I was sort of looking back uh, at the very first, that, that wave of FinTech, which sort of, was sort of the online lending wave, I think what we were looking at at the time was we were looking at um, kind of the, you know, this concept of like increasingly complex transactions going online uh, and uh, saw that happening with uh, lending. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I remember we actually did a, a study because we had a previous investment in uh, the online travel space. Mm-hmm. And the study was comparing online travel to online banking. And one of the things you saw in travel was that uh, it, it had developed back at that time to the point where like 70% of travel purchases were considered online and yep. executed online. Yep. And so we said, okay, let's look at what, what's happened. You looked at like National Bureau of Labor Relations metrics. What had happened to travel agents? And said, okay, let's parlay that over to banks. Bank and tellers. Bank yeah. tellers. Or and mortgage bank, writers. Right. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, or brokers or, yeah. you know. And said, gosh, this feels like the same thing could happen. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story, which was uh, when we first invested in Lending Club, we invested in the equity. And then we also, at a time when the largest online investor in on the company had about a million dollars on the platform, uh, Peter put 25 and then 50 million on, on the platform. I remember you telling me at the time. And and you picked up some warrants, I think, in that or, or yeah, some think, equity. Yeah. But like yeah. you basically provided liquidity to Lending Club so they could actually do loans. Like that was a game changing moment in peer to peer lending. Yeah, it, when it was kind of nice because at the, for I think about maybe 18 months, I think Peter was the largest yeah. uh, investor in online lending yeah. worldwide. And, you know, it was funny, though. I remember the day we were wiring the funds. <laughs> uh, I might have told you this right. The day we were wiring the funds, yeah. uh, we had. Uh, a near and dear friend who at the time was managing wealth management for uh, Credit Suisse, uh-huh. using Credit Suisse at the time, uh, called me up and he said, I see these wire transfer instructions. And I looked at this company called Lending Club and I looked it up and, you know, they, they do loans to people they've never met in person. Yeah, yeah. And and I said, yeah, that's that's kind of the bet. And, you know, and it was so funny, just completely deadpan. He said, so you, you saw the financial crisis that just happened, <laughs> right? And, you know, and uh, in hindsight, it was interesting because for me, that was like a definitional conversation. Because yeah. It was kind of... Like one of these things where, wow, okay, you know, this concept of lending to people online felt, felt very nascent at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, other, the other industry we actually looked at when we were looking at this was uh, online dating. And uh, it was a similar concept. It was like, hey, these are people you've never met in person, but you're willing to pick out somebody you might go out on a date with. I, I've met my wife on eHarmony, which is super old school, but I'm, yeah, I'm a believer. Well, it's the same thesis, though. You're right in that there's a pool of people out there that you're never going to meet bumping into them in right. a street or a bar. And right. the same thing with lending. There's a bunch of people who aren't ever going to come into your branch. You would never, you would but, never contact them. But yeah. they're great, you know, either people to marry in yeah, my or, case. Yeah, or, or credits. Or yeah, people right. credits, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I was really, I'm sure you had a moment like, 
this, yeah. I hope this works kind of moment. Yeah, right no, that we, moment. We, yeah. Uh, we did. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was funny because uh, I think when he called me uh, and he had been career financial industry yeah. services professional, you know, it was one of those moments where, you know, I remember saying, yes, let's send the wire. And, uh, <laughs> and it was a big check at the time. And uh, we were like, yeah, I hope this works. And then, um, you know, but I think we were convinced of uh, like this availability of data coming into uh, to companies. Yeah. And, uh, the other thing, so that led us to invest in uh, a couple other companies, um, I think Cabbage and then SoFi. And, you know, it's funny that that's turned into a string of like uh, seven or eight companies now in this space. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and if I look at how those companies have fared, you know, what's interesting is um, I, I think the thesis of more and more data coming online that you can use to sort of understand human behavior, that, that that's panned out. Oh, big time. And that, that was the thing with Lending Club and, and then Cabbage, SoFi. It was all math based. It was like, hey, we actually know what's going, and the yeah. actuarial tables yeah. are saying these are good credits, and they're going to work out in a diversified portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. Each one of those companies did something really interesting. So, Lending Club did the peer to peer, like the Peter's money right. lending out. Yeah, Cabbage did small business lending, which I always thought was like mm. even riskier for some reason in my head. Maybe I, not. I think, yeah, no, I, th- I think there's something to that though. Yeah. Where, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if it's depending on the credit, the the, the, the like the FICO bands you're lending to, or the people you're lending to. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I realize, especially because cabbage loans are unsecured, uh, yeah, uh, business loans, and so what you're what you're trying to sample through the data is not somebody's personal financial characteristics, which you might pick up in a FICO score, but their ability to manage a small business. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I do think it, it's an order of magnitude harder yeah. uh, to be able to do that. And I, I think over time, uh, as they've pulled in more data sources and as they've refined their underwriting models, they've gotten better and better at it. And you know, these days, um, I think when we look at market statistics, I, I think uh, one thing that that uh, helps is scale, and I think they're probably something like two to three percent of the U.S. small business lending wow, right now. Wow! Wow! And and so what happens is, if you're conc- and, and bear in mind they're also looking at the for their current customers they're looking at all of their data every day. Yeah. And so you build up this contextual view of how uh, small businesses are doing, and you know, like one of the one of the insights that uh, popped out of the the work with Cabbage that uh, always intrigued me was, you could have a coffee shop in. Uh, a given geography, coffee shop in San Francisco, and a second coffee shop like down the street in San Francisco. And you know, normally we'd say, well, how, how strong of a factor is geography in like the local economy? And actually we found uh, that there's, in many instances, like a stronger correlation between how that business is being managed uh, and that trumps geography. So you know, if the one coffee shop owner is trying to really aggressively grow his business, he's going to look a lot more more similar to somebody else in another city. Oh, interesting. That is also trying yeah. to grow yeah, 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 uh, yeah. versus the guy down the street. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so it's it's really there really is something to sampling on uh, somebody's ability to manage a small business. Well, and it's so hard to judge that. We did on deck capital at Lighthouse, which well, was kind of yeah. a you know, yeah, yeah. but I think Cabbage maybe did it. Maybe was doing something you know, and ended up working better for Cabbage. The other thing that Cabbage did was like almost like instantaneous approval. Yeah. Which I, yeah. that was like the thing that really got my attention. I was like, oh my gosh, like they're, yeah. and it was clear there was like algorithmic, uh, you know, approach, but like that was a game changer for the the market. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's almost like the, uh, the automation of underwriting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and if you look at it, um, and I've met some of the folks from on deck over the years. Yeah. And, yeah you know, uh, have a lot of respect for what they built. Uh, at the same time, you sort of, you look for differences between the two yeah. companies sometimes. And I got the impression that Cabbage um, has, has very much tried to also go build a direct consumer brand. Uh, and so, you know, where OnDeck, I think, also had, had used like a broker channel. They were buying a lot of, bro- yeah, 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 yeah. But it worked out for both of them. But uh, And yeah, then yeah. SoFi was a, and I have, I was too chicken. I have like, you remember how they did those, some of those debt 
uh, you yeah. know, investment individuals can invest. Yeah, yeah. Christina Kramlick came and told me I should well, invest in SoFi yeah, yeah, yeah. at yeah. Series A or Series B, and I was oh too gosh. chicken. Yeah. But you obviously yeah. did it. But they were they were on to like the I don't know how to say it, but there's a word for it. But like specialty groups, you yeah. know, and and recognizing how specialty groups behave in different ways sometimes, and how you can underwrite mm. a specific specialty group that you couldn't do with, you with couldn't someone do. else. Yeah, no, that's right. One, and you look at like uh, their their concept of like uh, was it uh, high high earnings not yet rich like yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 yeah. So um, you know, I, I think they they sort of figured out how to do like cash flow underwriting yeah. for that uh, segment, and you know, I think um, yeah, no, that that and, and what's funny is actually. We've also followed Mike Cagney into his next company. Oh, you're a figure. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. And so uh, now working with him again. Oh, that's uh, awesome. At, uh, at the, next, uh, uh, the next company. I, I met him a couple of times and he's like, he's he's as real as it gets, yeah, good and bad. Right. You know, you <laughs> yeah. know exactly how he feels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, and he's also, yeah, I'd say he's almost like an iconoclast. Yeah, oh, he, totally. He, he will tell you exactly, exactly what he feels. And, you know, the thing that's interesting is that he's not afraid to sort of call out like financial institutions sometimes. And, and but I, I think he's uh, proven himself like a, a Kind of a rare uh, entrepreneur in financial services. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's yeah. he's so smart. He was doing trying to do Black Shoals in his head on startup warrants <laughs> while I was talking to him and arguing with me about the value. And really? I was like, Mike, yeah. you're going down. But I knew I could tell. Like I was like, this guy is like yeah. 30 IQ points higher than yeah, me. No, he's, you know, he's definitely one. Well, you know, it's funny. You, you take somebody who's both smart and then also knows the industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He saw it. Um, yeah. So that was the first. So you guys, I mean. Kudos. Yeah, you nailed thanks, it. thanks. But, yeah. you know, there's also plenty of other great fields in fintech that, yeah. uh, you know, are out there as well. Well, so that's like the first wave. And then maybe talk about what you're seeing over the last three or four years and the mm. stuff that you're investing in nowadays. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's been like this, I'd say, proliferation in uh, all sorts of areas of uh, fintech. And, uh, you know, we just came through this review of, uh, gosh, I think it was like 10 different sub-segments. And uh, all of them were sort of doing well uh, and growing. And Everything from what you're seeing with like the uh, consumerization of finance, uh, you know, uh, companies like Dave.com, or you know, um, uh, and then also sort of the next generation of banks, like the Chimes of the world, and then you know, uh, um, the area that because we have the real estate investment business, the uh, one area that we uh, pushed into very heavily has been this intersection of like finance and real estate. Yeah, uh, and so whether it's um, digital home mortgage, digital HELOC, or digital uh, assistance for buying a home. Uh, I think all three of those, uh, I think we now have something like uh, four investments in the space. That's amazing. Yeah. And we were before we turned on the mics, we were talking like about a specific company and specific use case. But yeah. maybe there, there's been like Open Door mm. and some other institutional new entrants in residential home buying. Yeah. And yeah. and some of that, and you guys and, and Peter Thompson has a group doing that too, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. But maybe paint the picture for folks of what's kind of changed there and then how some of your companies. Well, it's a, one of the... Biggest surprises, and and so uh, it's funny. We just invested uh, maybe three or four months ago in a company called Ribbon, based in New York. Um, interestingly, uh, somebody, the, the entrepreneur who founded the company, came out of Lending Club. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, the, you're alumni. I mean, everyone's going to call you. That's that's you yeah, know. The, I have the, the new idea. I got to talk to Don. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it was so funny because it, it was. Uh, it's interesting to see like that first generation of fintech start to lead to like the next generation. Yeah, exactly. Companies. And so the, the the entrepreneur is a, a gentleman named Shavel Shah, uh, and. Uh, uh, basically, I think uh, if you look at Ribbon, what they're doing uh, is, is quite interesting. It's helping people buy homes in the territories where they're working uh, with an all-cash offer, basically through Ribbon. Uh, and you know what we found uh, as we got to know the company and we we're looking at it, they were operating in certain markets like Charlotte or Raleigh Durham, or uh, you know, and expanding sort of from the east out to the west. And one of the things we heard was we heard that in some markets in uh, some parts of 
uh, Charlotte, like 40% of the homes uh, were being bought with all cash offers. And that'd be either the iBuyers, like the open doors of the world, or uh, the institutional buyers like like Peter's group. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, and that stat probably was like 10% 10 years ago, right? Or 5%? Yeah. Like well, no and, one, you know, only very wealthy people could buy yeah, all could cash houses. Buy, uh, yeah, houses with all cash offers. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the history, it really has become like an institutional buyer's yeah. market. Of like, and one of the things that we did was we went to the guys running our, our uh, real estate investment business and said, you know, in the markets that they're, they're operating in, which were like Dallas, Fort Worth, and uh, Atlanta, and, you know, some of the other southern states, you know, is this common? And, and much to my surprise, they said, well, some neighborhoods of Dallas, uh, Fort Worth are like 40% wow. all, you know, all cash offers. And then certain neighborhoods in uh, Atlanta would be like 90% all cash offers. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, and it was surprising. It's like, I think the... Is that, a, is that a neighborhood that an open-door institution targeted as like, hey, we want to own as much inventory in that neighborhood as possible kind of situation? Well, I think I think it's a combination of factors. I think, um, for one thing, I, th- I think there's a lot of data science that goes into yeah. the home purchase these days. Yeah. And like that's one thing we'll do with our real estate investment group is look at the tech stack they're using to buy homes. Uh, and so there's... Typically, you'll have like a model that says, okay, here's all the inputs to... The acquisition of the home, home purchase cost. Um, here's what it's going to cost for me to renovate it and then rent it out. Yeah. And so I think what happens is in certain markets, you can look at the. Uh, it's almost like a fluctuation between the home acquisition pricing and the rental pricing. And it's like I can acquire it on a relatively cheaper basis and rent it out. Uh, and therefore, you know, buyers go in and start buying up a lot of homes there yeah. until the until the prices have appreciated. Yeah, it's a classic like math, you know, and you're just working out, you know, it's it's almost like the same math that goes into customer acquisition on Facebook or something yeah, like that. I can like, buy this property. Yeah. I know it's going to pay off it's, and da, 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 da. Yeah, it's like this arbitrage. Yeah. And and uh, so I think that certain markets lend themselves to that where the, there's more renters in the market than there are buyers in yep. the market. So anyways, uh, what we found was that this is actually much more prevalent than we'd expected. And so what Ribbon is doing is uh, they kind of come in uh, on the other side of that equation and say, if you're a home buyer and you want to buy a home, but you want to buy a home in a neighborhood that is dominated by all yep. cash offers, you can work with Ribbon. And Ribbon, in effect, buys a home for you. And when you close on the home, uh, you enter into a daily rental agreement with Ribbon. And you move your things out of your old place into your new Ribbon-owned home. And then you transfer your mortgage or you basically move the mortgage from one yeah. property to the other. And then Ribbon basically... Uh, you pay ribbon off for that. And so it's a transitional product. It's super powerful for actually people like me who have bootstrapped a company. So like yeah. I have a hard time coming up with enough cash to do an all cash offer, right? And yeah. I'm competing in San Francisco. So, f- but also like the tra- that transitional loan allows you not to pay rent and a home mortgage in yeah. the same, yeah. at the same time, which is hard for some people. That's right. And you can also, I presume, get a traditional loan either from Ribbon or a bank that maybe has a different interest rate or something like yeah, that and, and give you right time. Now it's, it's, yeah, right now it's through, it's through the bank part yeah. that they'd be, they'd be working. Yeah. And, you know, and what's interesting is that, um, you know, the, there's one other thing that I think uh, Ribbon has realized is, you know, there's there's also an arbitrage between the discount to market that the institutional buyers usually are looking to get versus uh, if you're a homeowner, you're, you're looking not at cap rates and rate to return and things like that, but you're looking at, hey, this is the neighborhood I want to live in. You know, if you have children, it's like, this is the school I want my totally. kids to go to. And so you you look at the market price and say, well, that, that is the market price. Yeah. Not, you know, gee, I'll only buy it if I get a 15% discount. Yeah. Uh, and so basically they're coming in and leveraging the fact that uh, the retail buyers are willing to pay market where the institutional buyers yeah. are happy. Uh, it makes so, sen- so much sense though, because like, 
you buy a place with a, you know, you, you don't want the walk up if you've got a two year old like I do, you yeah. know, like it's yeah, too, yeah. just too hard. But, uh, but the data science person might see a different value or, yeah. or some, or you like the paint job or you like whatever it is, yeah. you know, there's like emotional factors yeah, totally. that you attach to a home yeah. that, that an institutional buyer who's, you know, maybe has a portfolio of several thousand homes. Uh, they're much more interested in sort of the rates return yeah. and appreciation. And do you think it's also future. like the timeline too? Cause like when, like when we buy a house, I know we're going to plan to be in the house for, I'll probably die in that house, you know, 30, yeah. 50 years, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Is that, does that set I think, it off I too? think so. You know, the, the one thing I've noticed uh, when, as we've spent a lot of time at this, this part of the FinTech world, this intersection of property and fin, there's much more active buying and selling of portfolios amongst the large institutional yeah. homeowners. And it's, Different, you know, and, and what happens is sometimes, like our group, will acquire a portfolio uh, of 30 homes or acquire a portfolio of, you know, X number of homes. And then out of that portfolio, say, you know what, these two are in neighbors, neighborhoods where they're just far enough away from my property management uh, that it's going to be harder to service mm-hmm. them. So I want to sell them off. Yeah. And, and so... You know uh, what I realize it's like is like a secondary market. Yeah, and, yeah, that's right. And you know what happens is I, I do think there's a difference in timeline. Uh, and, and if home price appreciation spiked in certain markets, then I think a lot of the the folks like our our guys that are doing this the, the home buying business they might look in and say, you know what, we're going to take those gains. And, and uh, where, where a homeowner might say, yeah. hey, that's great. Maybe I'll take out a, a home equity line yeah. of credit against that, as opposed to moving. Yeah, I'm not going to uproot my family. That's amazing. Yeah. I I remember that whole market is so fascinating because in the downturn in 0809. A bunch of institutional investors mm. stepped in and per, with all the um, when people were losing their houses, yeah. and I saw these huge portfolios. And it's interesting 100%. that like your company yeah. Ribbon can now take advantage of mm. like all these factors and actually provide a service to someone like me. That actually, the homeowners, it, yeah, yeah, it'll really help me. Yeah, you know? well, and you know it's interesting. And so Ribbon is actually the, the way that they uh, distribute is that they, they work with real estate agents. Yeah, and so it becomes something that the real estate agents refer to their clients. Uh, and the one the one thing that it's it's nice to have something that that we think will do well, but then also makes you feel good about what you're yeah. doing, right? The one thing we heard was, I remember talking to one of the agents in uh, Charlotte who said, there were certain neighborhoods that I used to tell my customers, like, let's just not bother touring this neighborhood because it's going to be an all-cash neighborhood. And we'll lose. Yeah, yeah, and we're, we're going to lose. So, like, let's not waste each other's time. Yeah. Like, and, and now it's like, no, we actually, we can go that's, look at that. That's really and, amazing. you know, we can actually compete in those neighborhoods because, okay. you know. So it was one of those things where, um, you know, the one other comment I heard that, uh was really uh, interesting too, and it speaks more to just like the changing na- nature of like uh, demographics and home buying. Was that uh, one of the agents we spoke to, uh, also in Charlotte, said, "You know, um, I look at these large apartment blocks of all these young families that basically haven't had the capital formation yet to buy a home. Yeah, and even when there's a downturn, like those, she used to say, those are my batteries. Yeah, that's what's going to that's what's going to provide energy to the real estate market when the market uh, tanks." I mean, and again, we're, my wife is younger than me, but like we talk about it all the time, but you know, and actually I'm going to check out Ribbon. That's really cool. Um, you also talked about like some of the online, uh, banking mm. companies, like yeah. what, I mean, I'm, I'm still with Wells Fargo and first Republic yeah. and God yeah. bless first Republic. I love them. But like, yeah. we had Mercury, Ahmad from Mercury on the podcast. And like, I see the appeal yeah. of yeah. these banking apps. Like, how do you see the market unfolding? You know, um, I, I've been super impressed with the amount of acquisition they've been able to do yeah. and tested out several of them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, in a way I look at it and sort of like the commoditization of a lot of financial services. And by that, I mean, you, basically, I think you're collapsing some of the 
cost structure into a, a much simpler cost structure. <laughs> totally. Where and where the the lending part of the organization is actually separated out to specialists. Yeah. Like some of the online distributors yeah. of, of credit. Uh, and so your loan officers become like uh, virtual loan officers, in fact. Uh, and uh, so to me, that that it, it frankly makes total sense. Uh, I remember. Once upon a time, knowing um, uh, the, the founder of Simple Finance, uh, mm-hmm. Simple yeah, got bought yeah. by BBVA. Yeah, and it was it was the it was kind of like Stripe, right? A little yeah. bit like Stripe. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, one uh, it was, uh, and so it's become the uh, the bank that BBVA offers in this space. And uh, you know, I, I think he sort of had the correct vision, which was, you know, gee, these markets over time uh, are basically going to convert into something that's basically a better product for the consumer, and also a lot easier to use. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I mean, it, to me, it, it it feels like absolutely sort of the arc of history. And you know, if anything, um, I'd say it does it does feel like some of the tech trend. Basically, it's leading to the commoditization of some yeah. of these markets. Well, I think a lot of people are like me, where my banking needs are actually pretty simple outside mm. of like that one moment I need a mortgage. Yeah, I got I, yeah. I got my bank accounts. I'm using you know someone like Schwab or SoFi to invest, but like. For my bank, I just kind of mm. need them to hold the money and process checks. Yeah, and yeah. like the apps do that really, really well. Yeah, and yeah. I I've found it's been so as a business like we are a, a big business user of First mm. Republic SVB because we have so many clients that are working on it. They have made huge strides in making their interfaces and their data feeds Simpler. cleaner. It's yeah. actually made accounting so much easier. Mm. So I I love this like whole trend. It's been it's been good. Yeah, yeah. and it's good for the consumer. It's interesting too because like one of the things that I think is coming and Cabbage has already announced some of this, but they're, they're going to uh, kind of a vision that Rob Froin, the CEO there, had articulated, and that was basically uh, he, he would call it uh, cash flow as a service. But basically, it's understanding sort of the ebbs and flows of your monthly cash, and then if there's going to be uh, a point in time where you're going to have like an insufficient funds fee. Yeah. And I think Dave.com sort of nailed this with like their their monthly bill that you can, m- monthly subscription fee you can pay to cover those. And uh, for me, the next sort of feature that I think you'll start to see in some of these new consumer banks or even from folks like Cabbage will be something that says, you know, gee, I, I recognize in the Cabbage case, you know, you're running your business. I recognize that typically you pay payroll on these days and you're collecting from these, these locations and gee, it doesn't look like you're going to be collecting enough to cover payroll, so I'm going to fund a short-term loan to cover that gap. And, uh, you know, uh, when the next set of revenues come in, I'll pay that off. Yeah. And, and in a way, it, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I remember one time we, uh, uh, at one of the, the board meetings, we had um, Scott Thompson, yeah. uh, the former CEO of, uh, yeah, CEO of PayPal, said uh, something I thought was very uh, appropriate. He said, you know, the one thing a small business owner doesn't have is time. And so anything we can do to save them time, you know, basically thinking, helping think oh. on their behalf. Uh, you said that, that that's net positive for all of us. And I, I kind of feel like that's where a lot of these apps are going. I feel like the other thing the small business person doesn't have is they internalize all the stress themselves. Yeah. There's no one, yeah, you know. <laughs> and so helping them in that yeah. two-day window yeah. where it's close yeah, yeah. is, I mean, I remember how we were like four years ago. We had yeah. like five people and it was like, oh, my gosh, we got to collect. And, the, you yeah, know, yeah. so that's an amazing service. Yeah. And I was just reflecting on that on the consumer side, like a big profit center for traditional banks is those overdraft fees. And it also hits yeah. people in lower income brackets, a disproportionate amount. So that's really cool yeah. that, no, and that think, they can offer that kind of stuff. Well, and, and, and it's interesting because uh, for the consumer, I think if you can avoid that, the overdraft fee, yeah. um, it goes, uh, you know, it's one of these things where I think it's it's a win for the consumer and a win yeah. for the 
the lower cost basis tech provider who can do yeah. that. And, and so, you know, the one thing that's interesting is I'm, I'm expecting with a lot of these, the, the next generation of sort of fintech companies, what you'll see is much higher NPS scores than the banks. Have oh, yeah, had, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because they won't have those nasty overdraft fees. Yeah, and yeah. Over, or surprises yeah. or, you know. And, you know, I think that there's organizations that we have a ton of respect for, like First Republic yeah. Bank or Silicon yeah. Valley Bank. But, you know, I think if you look at, like, the NPS scores for uh, a Wells, Wells. or BK yeah, yeah, others, yeah, yeah. you know, a uh, little bit tougher sledding. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Do you see, um, this is your crystal ball moment yeah. here, do you see traditional banks like Wells buying those type of companies or do you see like the classic innovator coming into the market and taking a lot of share and doing an IPO kind of company? You know, and it's probably a, a bold statement, but I tend to see more of the latter. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if I look at the BBVA acquisition of Simple, I think it's gone, gone okay, yeah. but I don't think it's revolutionized yeah. uh, either the buyer or the industry. And so, you know, I think it's a uh, it's a little bit harder to sort of look at that and say, yeah, that's going to be the way it goes. Yeah. And you know, we've seen some, we've we've seen some acquisitions, but it, I, I think, you know, it feels like it's going to be harder for the banks to come around and say, yeah, we should buy something. Yeah. And you know, in in conversations I've had with people working inside the big banks, I think uh, it's gone from skepticism to, you know, one one thing I have seen is people say, you know what, actually, sometimes when we look at these, we we see things that we know we should be doing, but we just haven't been able to, to move the organization because of the bureaucracy yeah yeah i found that too talking to people at big banks there's like uh this is a gross stereotype but yeah. there's a, a feeling of like help almost like helplessness like mm. i just can't push it through i know yeah. that i remember having those conversations around like when lending club was doing their ipo and things like that and like yeah. Yeah. talking to like someone at wells or bell or b of a and he's like mm. we should be we should be doing this like yeah. you know yeah, yeah. why are we not the ones why doing are we not these doing loans, this right yeah, yeah. but well, it just they couldn't. They couldn't do it. You well, know? and it's, it's almost like classic innovators dilemma. But yeah. uh, I remember one of the, you know, it, we do a lot of uh, research, uh, and research for us typically will be in our verticals around a certain topic or theme, or or in conjunction with one of our portfolio companies. And as part of these, I, I actually had spent a, a bunch of time talking with, like, heads of innovation or heads of uh, like chief architects at a couple different banks. And I remember. Um, one of the most remarkable conversations I had with somebody who's in, at one of the called a top 50 incumbent bank, uh, and he was a, a chief architect, and you know also ran some of their innovation labs. And I walk into his office, and he had a whiteboard with all these features, and the feature set was like the same feature set that we knew a lot of startups were working on. Yeah. And I sort of looked at them and said, "Wow, you guys are thinking of the exact same yeah. things for your customers, like you know helping predict if they're going to run out of cash at a certain day, or you know all these things." And uh, he sort of looked at me, and I said, "So." Do you think you're going to put these in place? And he said, you know, my fear is that uh, interest rates will rise. This place, meaning his bank, is going to start printing cash because of the interest oh. rates. And, and he looks at me and he's like, Don, I think we're going to backslide on all of them. Oh, my and he's like, gosh. Oh, oh, that's, you know. You feel bad for him, you know. You like, feel bad for him. I'm sure his yeah. stock options will be worth a ton, but, yeah, like, he's not right. going to get that yeah. emotional career fulfillment that yeah, he could have. No, oh. but it was almost kind of like this concept of, we're going to be printing too much money yeah. to, to to change that much. And therefore, you know, the irony of uh, potentially increasing interest rates could be slower innovation. Yeah. Uh, well, I just saw yesterday in Bill.com's uh, IPO that a lot of the profit they make is actually on the cash, you know, the interest on the yeah. cash. And I, and we, we are, Matt, like we put every client on Bill.com. So we're a oh, power. Nice. We're one of their largest partners. Nice in the startup world, but like I never, because it's only in their account for like one day. It's yeah, not like yeah, a yeah. lot of, you know, yeah. but it just adds up. It's one, pretty amazing. One, it's, it's kind of interesting too, because we see with a lot of the next generation of like FinTech companies, 
uh, that they're making money on managing the payment rails, yeah. either for an interchange yeah. or things like this. Interchanges, I see it yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And it's interesting because it's kind of like, gosh, you know, you can build a nice company and be profitable off of just that, where just that alone is not going to sort of solve the, uh, when you look at the IT spend, yeah. know, other things for some of the big banks. It's, yeah. It's, yeah that, that doesn't get you there. That's, that's amazing. Um, okay, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much. Can you, I, I do have my, my one question. Yeah, yeah. One piece of advice for any for the founders that you mm, work with, yeah, yeah. Besides, so, besides being nice and uh, hit yeah, your numbers, <laughs> you know, um, the thing that I've found uh, has worked for entrepreneurs is look for like in your industry, look for something that is the conventional wisdom to challenge. Uh, and uh, I'll give you. I, I think we talked about the lending club and the conventional wisdom of you know you only lend to people them. you've yeah, met. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have another company um, called Ladder Life. It's in the online direct life insurance space. Mm-hmm. And I remember as we were doing research on sort of insure tech and insurance innovation, going to different insurance industry conferences, and the uh, conventional wisdom has, has been that life insurance is something that's sold, not bought. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it's something where you're going to pay for it today, but it's going to benefit yeah. your family members. Your And it is like a kind of an aggressive sale historically. Like, I bought a lot of life insurance because yeah. I had a baby. And, yeah, you yeah. feel like you're like, this it's, is, it's, this is I'm almost buying a car right now kind yeah, of situation. that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, so that that's the established wisdom of the uh, life insurance business. And what we found is that, uh, you know, so the idea of doing it online direct, and by the way, you know, distributing via API to websites that happen to do th- deal with things like um, when you get a home mortgage, you know, thinking about instances where you start to think about life insurance, yeah, or you know, through uh, websites that deal with things like um, parents having children. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was me. Yeah. Th- that's the moments when you start to think about yeah. it, and uh, you know, th- and that's worked out r- really well. And it's like one of the things where I, I think if I were to start a business today. Uh, I'd go find some established wisdom. I'd say even if you look at the success that some of the uh, challenger banks have had, you know, there the conventional wisdom that they challenged was this concept that people would never switch their direct deposit accounts. You know, that was kind of a unknown yeah. conventional wisdom. Uh, I think challenging something like that, and, and they've done it successfully, right? I so. see it all the time because we get the notification when someone changes. Yeah, it's, yeah. People are super comfortable doing that now because yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah, actually yeah. pretty easy. Well, and it, it's, and so it's almost like, you know, pick a pick a conventional wisdom. And yeah, after and that. attack it. I love it. Don, uh, do you want to tell everyone how where they can find you and how to reach uh, out to sure. us? You, you yeah. can see um, uh, probably the easiest way to, to get in touch would be uh, you can see learn more about our group at uh, tomvest.com, yeah. uh, our website, or you know for myself, um, I'd say LinkedIn is probably the easiest yeah. way. And I'm just Don Butler, Don Butler at LinkedIn. Awesome. On, on LinkedIn. And, all, and just my personal testimonials: every interaction I've ever had with you, you are the nicest, oh, very caring can. person. So, and you've been incredibly successful. So, well, it's working. Keep keep it up. And yeah. thanks for coming by on the podcast. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise. Founders and friends, it's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Scotty Orr.